night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Jennifer Palmieri, president of the Center for American Progress Action Fund and author of Dear Madam President, an open letter to the women who will run the world. Despite all the gains women have made in this country, we still struggle to envision a woman as president. As head of communications for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and White House communications director under President Barack Obama, Jennifer Palmieri optimistically argues that the Clinton candidacy and all she experienced on the campaign trail, confusion, admiration, hate, love, acceptance, rejection, can now open the country up to reimagining women in leadership roles. Uh, Jennifer is featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Forbes. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Jennifer. I'm very happy to be with you, Catherine. So, Dear Madam President has been described by Cory Booker as a book that every parent should encourage their daughters and their sons to read. So, why why, why did he give you that kind of endorsement about <laughs> your book? Um, I think... I think because, you know, if you, if you think about this, there's nothing more confident in the world than a little girl, right? Like a nine-year-old girl. We saw at the uh, March for Life and in, in, uh, the anti-gun march in, um, in March, um, Yolanda King, who was MLK's granddaughter, spoke at the march. And she was so powerful and full of joy and confidence. She's nine years old. And, you know, you think there's just not anything more confident than a, a little girl. We come into this world brimming with confidence. And then somewhere along the way, uh, girls are, you know, society sort of sends us clues and teaches us things that inhibits us. And what, the, what I think the book does for young girls, young women, and really, you know, I, I, may, I meant it for women of all ages, is... Don't learn those lessons. Don't become inhibited. Understand the power of your own voice. Understand that as much gains as men, women have made in politics and in the workplace, that you know when you look at it from the scope of human history, we've made a lot of gains in the last 100 years, but it's only been 100 years that women um, have been... Um, uh, you know, participating with men in, in professions that were traditionally held by men. So when something doesn't seem quite right to you or you don't feel like you quite fit in in politics or you don't quite fit in in the workplace, maybe that's because it wasn't built with you in mind. It was built with men in mind. And I think you want young girls and young men both to read this book so it is. it sort of opens their eyes to how we can think about leadership in a new way that's not just based on the models um, for men. And I really want young women to understand the power of their own perspective and their own voice and how we need them to speak out and, um, and participate and do it in whatever way feels right to them. Okay. Jennifer, you know, you talked about women who are young women, actually, fourth and fifth graders, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and you're so right. At that yeah. age, they're so enthusiastic. They feel comfortable about who they are. Sort of the whole yeah. world is open to them. But suddenly when they go through puberty, I would say, you know, 11, 12, yeah. 13, everything changes. And right. I, and I assume, and this is in your book, I mean, this is what it's all about. The world was really in terms of power and position and whether it's as president of the United States or, or head of a, cor- of a corporation is really set up for men and for the way yeah. men operate and not for women. So it's a huge kind of undertaking. Yeah, and I had, you yeah. know, it really didn't occur to me that way until I was writing the book. But you, you know, I just, I did not think it was that big of a deal to elect the first woman president when I, when I first joined the Clinton campaign, right? That's not why I did it. I, I, went, I wanted to work on that campaign because I thought Hillary was the best person for the job. And we'd elected the first black president in America. That seemed to me that that was harder than electing the first woman president. In my own career, I'd done really well. I've always felt supported by men and women both. Um, and I thought we'd reached equality. And it just what, um, you know, and... and what her race proved to me was, 
you know, she had to do what all the women of her baby boomer generation did in, a, in each profession where they broke the glass ceiling, which was they had to prove I can do the job just the same way a man would, right? Right. A one friend of mine who was part of that generation said, I had to dress like a girl, think like a man, and work like a dog. <laughs> but, like, I had to show that I could do it just like them. No allowances needed to be made for the fact that I was a woman. There would be no difference in the job. And that's terrible, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, I thought, well, I mean, you know, Jennifer, I, I, I remember I thinking... I know I can do a job just as well as a man, but I don't want to. I want to do it the way I want to do it. And I feel like now that's what women get to do. You get to decide that, you know, that... Yes, these professions have all been designed by men for men, not because men are trying to hold us back. It's just how history unfolded. And now we get to do it in a new way. And that's what, you know, it's a little scary, but it's inspiring and empowering. Well, I remember, Jennifer, thinking uh, Hillary is the best qualified. I don't even think that people disagreed with that, uh, even people who didn't vote for her. It was like she's been secretary right. of stage, senator from New York. Uh, you know, she has all these credentials and and uh, and she's very smart, intelligent. But yet just what we're talking about got in the way. I mean, she wasn't a man. And I remember thinking we are never going to elect a woman as president of the United States. And all along that sort of, it it, it was sort of like, that was kind of in the back of my head that we're not going to be able to. You felt the whole campaign. Yeah, I I really did. And I would, I listened to her speak and even, you know, as somebody who speaks on the radio, for instance, you know, when Hillary was on, when giving a speech, and I think you mentioned that maybe in the book or in one of the interviews I've seen you in, um, you know, when she spoke, when she raised her voice or she became animated yeah. about something, it was, everyone was very critical. She sounds like a shrew. She sounds like, you know, a mother yelling at her kid. Um, so, you know, that got in the way too. You know, how do you present yourself verbally to be, yeah. uh, you know, to sound powerful, but at the same time, not sound like a and I'm shrew. Uh, but yes, through the whole campaign, that's what I thought. And I, you know, I voted for her, uh, but it was like, this is never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> well, you were right. <laughs> um, I was. I did. I was. You know, it's yeah. it's that that was sort of my first clue that what's at the root of this problem for women is that there is no model. There's like no way for us to think about a woman in that sort of ultimate leader role. Um, was all of this critique of her style of presentation. And it was, you know, and and, um, and I say in the book that people would come to me with advice, you know, big name people from Hollywood would send memos about everything she needs to do better. And the, and the advice would all be contradictory. She has to be strong, but she can't be shrill. She should be n- more vulnerable, but she can't ever look weak, you know. And it's, it just didn't make any sense, Um and I said to Hillary, I showed her some of these memos, and she said, here's what you should do. You should tell everyone, wow, that's really helpful. Thank you so much. Um, but what would really help Hillary would be if you could point to a woman who does it exactly right on the world stage, and that would like help her sort of internalize that, you know, that woman's style and, 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 and give her you know, a concrete example that she could sort of model. And, of course, no one ever had an answer. And I just, I think that that was bound for the first woman who went through this. You know, you, you experienced it as she's going through this and it's never going to happen. I thought it would happen. I thought she would win, but it did show me, wow, we got a lot of work to do before women can lead in their own way as opposed to trying to prove I can do it just like a man. We're unforgiving, I think, as a culture. We're unforgiving mm-hmm. when it comes to women. I mean, we we did not elect the most qualified woman. We elected the most mm-hmm. unqualified man, uh, male. Yeah, it's 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 as if you know, it's like the old joke where like there's a flood and like. God sends help, and then he sends a boat, and then he sends a helicopter, and the person keeps saying, I'm waiting for God to save me. It, I feel that if you didn't understand that women still had obstacles, <laughs> the universe gave us Donald Trump, the, most, the least qualified person in modern history to run for president, to beat the woman who was objectively the most qualified person to ever run for president, and every day have him do something that um, 
is dangerous for a group of people and, you know, often offensive to women for us to see. This still exists. And we, and all of us are better than him. And most men aren't like him. And we are going to rise up and we're going to run for office. And we had the Me Too movement. And we are going to come out in the streets and march. And we're going to do this all our own way. Because if that guy can be president, anything is possible and anything is possible for me. And that's what's inspiring and remarkable about this moment is how women have chosen to feel more empowered in that it sort of exposed, yes, all of those doubts that we've had that things aren't quite right for women were correct. So what do we do? Because you do mention role models, models, and we don't have yeah. those role models. So how do we kind of overcome we get to be that? Them. With, we have to be them. We have to be them, you know? yeah. For these young and girls. That is, and that, yeah. I think that's unnerving for women and unnerving for women candidates, right? Because we like a checklist. What are the five things I have to do? I will do them all. I will be amazing at each of them. And uh, what I tell women candidates now is, you know, people are going to believe you can do the job. They think women are good at doing a job they've been given permission to do, right? That's progress in some respects because we don't doubt that women are capable and can do a job. But they're going to question why you want it. So they're going to have different questions for you than they do for a male candidate. What's the root of her motivation? We're still uneasy about that. We don't know what that's about in women. We don't know how to think about that still. Um, and they're going to judge your appearance and your voice, and that's, there's not a right answer there. You just got to be yourself and understand you are plowing, you know, you are a pioneer here, and you're making that new model of like what it looks like for a woman to lead. And I think that by, um, you know, embracing whatever qualities you have, you know, traditionally thought of as feminine, traditionally thought of masculine, embracing all of it is going to give us a whole person. And I think some of these old models that we use now don't just hold women back, they hold men back too. Well, can we still get over, you know, we're talking about that glass Mm -hmm. ceiling or however we want to describe it, but women, and you kind of touched on that, I think women still get stuck in the, I need a list, I need to be sure that I follow (laughs) through, that I am perfect, that before I make a decision or before I say this or do this, that it has to be just right. Uh, And we, and that that does, whereas men are just sort of out there, even if they're not sure of what they have to say, they'll say it anyway. Um, And that's been a problem in in corporate America for women to become CEOs of these companies because they, they just sort of stay stuck. They're afraid to ask for raises. They're afraid to... Uh, ask for, uh, you know, a higher position. Uh, we all, we still have that stuff, uh, you know, and uh, sort of, I don't know if it's in our DNA, mm-hmm. but we have to really, I guess, I mean, we have to, I think, deal with kind of that basic way we operate. Yeah, I think the way I think about that is it's like, you know, when you, a woman in a workplace profession like that, in you know, the professions you named or in politics, it's, as if we are visitors in a foreign land, right? And like any good guest, we try, we look for clues to try to understand the local customs, what's expected of us, how we're expected to react and behave, and modify our behavior to fit that model. Um, and what I think, and what I'm doing in my own life, is I'm not doing that anymore. I think there are two conversations that go on in our head at all times. At least, you know, this is like my, my experience. One is, this is, one is the voice that tells me this is what you truly believe. And the other is the voice that says, okay, that's what you believe, but let's test that against what society tells you is okay for you to do. And then only if I see, can I actually defend this, do I speak? And I'm not doing that anymore. You know, I have part of the book, one book, one chapter of the book is called Nod Less, Cry More. And that's, that's the chapter that sort of explores this question of how women are supposed to behave in politics or in the workplace. And the nodding means 
we absorb bad news, right? The Clinton campaign, I got a ton of bad news. And I would just nod and say, oh, of course, sure, fine. I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to blanch because I'm really tough. I can handle anything. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, there's a sense that women can't ever cry in politics or in the workplace. And, you know, that's holding back emotion that either is about stress or anger or frustration or for me, I'm often moved to tears because I say something that's important to me. Um, And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm expressing a powerful emotion, something that inspires me or concerns me. And I should be able to well up a little in the workplace and not have it be a big deal. In fact, I do. It just, it just happens. It just happens to me. Happens in the Oval Office. Happens with the campaign trail. Um, and, you know, I was telling one woman this, an interviewer, and she said, but what do you say to people who say it's just not professional to cry in the workplace? I was like, I say it is. I say it is. And I'm not, that's the conversation I'm talking about that we all have in our head where we're trying to justify, see if we can justify what we actually believe against what we've been told we're supposed to do our whole lives. Yeah. Well, I and think in I social think work terms, the turn it's kind women of this, have to make now. Hmm? Yeah. Well, I think in social work terms, it's sort of the supposed tos. Well, where did those supposed tos come from? Who said we're supposed to? Um, yeah. That's, yeah. It's not necessarily true. And not comparing us to men, but as you're talking about crying in the workplace or crying as a politician, mm-hmm. you do see more men coming crying. I mean, from you know whether it's Joe Biden or Barack Obama um, or you know. I've John Boehner, big crier. Yeah, he was a big crybaby. So <laughs> that, uh, you know, men are sort of, I think, reacting yes, more when, emotionally, too. I want to ask you about Hillary, yeah, though. I mean, I, mean, that's, I, I mean, that's what I mean. I mean, I think that this, these models that of leadership are sort of outdated, they, and they don't really work for women or men both. Um, and uh, But, you know, particularly our restrictive... Um, to women. Jennifer, what was the reaction from Hillary to your book? Oh, she loves it. <laughs> I think that... But she loves you know, she it and... Of, yeah, yeah. Huh? She loves it and what did she say? I mean, what specifically... Well, she said what, that, yeah. you know, I think she was she was supportive of me doing it, but then I think you always have some trepidation when someone who shared a very you know, searing experience with you tells the story from their perspective. And is she going to recognize herself? Is she not? Is she? And she said, you know, it is true, (laughs) which sounds like an obvious thing to say and not a very deep compliment. But I know what she meant by that, which was like, this is what it really felt like. This is the person I really am. That's what you have captured. Um, you know, she thought it. You know, smart, emotional, and true were the things. Was how she described it, and I was very relieved that she actually saw herself in this book, and you know that she thought I got it. I sort of conveyed right what, um, you know, like what the box that we were in. It's also been great. Um, you know, friends of hers who've known her for forty years, people like the actress Mary Steenburgen, who. Their friends from Arkansas. It's like this is yes, this is it. This is the woman I've known for forty years, or you know, people from the campaign to say yes, this is the box that we were in. That's what you've captured. Um, well, talking about and, that box, you know, did she feel? I just yeah. Did she feel? I mean, she was Secretary of State. That's that that's a huge position. I mean, that's a big position in this country. So was there like a transition in terms of how she had to? behave and feel boxed in and, and feel that she had to behave in a certain yeah. way? No. Yeah, it was or around, yes. the big problem was around ambition. I mean, there's, there's progress from, she ran in 2008, and in 2008, there were still questions about whether a woman could be commander-in-chief, right? That, those sort of questions still existed, and she had to deal with them, and she did effectively. I mean, um, people thought she could be commander-in-chief, obviously she didn't win, but... This time, you know, as you noted, I think people thought she was very qualified. Even people who didn't vote for her thought she could do all aspects of the job. But where we had trouble when we had to sort of, you know, moderate how she approached the race was an ambition. So everything that, you know, the advice that we got from 
people who've done a lot of research about women in politics is you have to express ambition is what people are uneasy about, and you have to express her ambition as being in service to others. It can't be about herself um, or her own ambition. And, you know, you brought up Secretary of State, what was really interesting and sort of uh, dispiriting for me to learn was that what people, that was their, their they thought the fact that she had been Barack Obama's with her um, Secretary of State was her best attribute, not because it meant she was prepared to do the job, but because it showed that she was willing to work for the man who had defeated her. And that meant she was willing to put her own ambition of being President of the United States aside and had the humility to go and work for someone who had beat her. They and also, that's, like, that's what people liked about her Secretary of State experience. See, it really is about being in service to others. See? Yeah. She really isn't just about running, being president. She's willing to go work for him. As if... Being, being Secretary of State is, um, you know, punishment as opposed to a great privilege, which is, you know, but that's, you know, that's of like, that's what you would have to do. That's where you have to meet the voters where they are. And that's where they had questions. Why does she want this? And I don't think it means everybody is sexist. It just means it's still new. Yeah, I think it's it's what we know. I mean, you know, you only and that's so far. This is all we've known. And now the now we're yeah we're we're you know and and we I don't know probably evolving is the word we've evolved. And I I really see that as a different. I think you also did mention this earlier that the generations have evolved. You know, from the baby boomers to the Gen Xs and the millennials, and they have an the women uh, particularly have an entirely different sense of themselves and where they fit into the world. So that all ties into this. I mean, your book is very timely, obviously. It's the perfect storm and the Me Too movement and the, the, high, the high, you know, the kids from Florida and the high school kids. Yes. And the women. Yeah. Yeah. So I see it the same way. I think these things are all, I think they're all related and it's all, uh, you know, an awareness that, it is there can things can be different, but we have to operate in the world differently in this intrinsic sense that we deserve better than what we've gotten thus far. So why do that's you think, Jennifer, an that inspiring that, that, thing of human nature. Why do you think that we as Americans why why are we different than let's say? And I know people have asked this question for you know often, but mm-hmm. that Europeans have women as leaders as heads of state, right. uh, what's the difference? What would you say would be the dif- in the Western, uh, you know, in Western countries, right. other Western countries? Yeah. So I think that in most of those countries, the women were elected in parliamentary systems. And I think where that might advantage a woman as opposed to our um, primary system is a relatively small number of people, like in the hundreds, right? A number in the hundreds get together and select who the party leader is going to be. And that's a situation that's better suited for women because she can work people one-on-one. People will know her personally. Um, And then you go before the country with the backing of your full party, um, as opposed to our system where you run in a primary and basically the entire country is is selecting you. And that's, you know, when Hillary was a senator, she was very popular in the United States Senate. She was very popular even with her own colleagues. Um, if I'm correct, I believe every, I don't believe any, maybe one senator endorse Senator Sanders, you know, having both served with both of them. Like, she wins her colleagues over. Um, and it's harder when a woman's got to go before the entire country uh, to get that nomination. I was just in London last week, and it struck me, you know, not only do they have a parliamentary system that, you know, allowed Margaret Thatcher um, and... Um, um, Theresa May to, you know, work their colleagues in a, you know, in a more one-on-one fashion. They also have queens, you know. They've had three queens. Um, so they're not selected by their subjects, but 
they're not, they're used to seeing a woman in a regal setting in charge. Yeah, so it's a very different, that's a, that's a good answer. It's a very different kind of political system in terms of the way we yeah. women can get in office. We only have a minute left. Um, just can you give us a website we can go to to uh, find out more about the book and also more about what you're doing? And the title of the book is Dear Madam President, an open letter to the women who will run the world. It's been great talking to you today. Oh, yes, my pleasure. I, have, I do have a website. It's dearmadampresident.com, but it's dearmmepresident.com. Uh, uh, There's more information there about appearances and where you can get the book. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Great talking to you. Thank you, Catherine. It's really great. Yep. That was Jennifer Palmieri, and her book is Dear Madam President. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show. Joining me is Chester Santos, U.S. National Memory Champion and author of Mastering Memory, Techniques to Turn Your Brain from a Sieve to a Sponge. Who doesn't have issues with their memory? We can all use some tips on how to fuel and improve our brains. Chester Santos, one of the world's foremost experts on memory training techniques, lays out effective techniques for total recall. And this is the story method, the body method, the journey method, and the phonetic alphabet system. His iPhone application, Steel Trap, was featured by Apple and became an instant worldwide bestseller. Uh, Chester is featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, CNN, ABC. Welcome to the show, Chester. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Uh, well, I understand you're way far away. You're uh, in Czechoslovakia, so we do have a slight uh, lag time in between uh, when you say something and I say something, so we'll have to have our audience put up with that. But, okay, memory, there's no question. We all want to have a, uh, we all have, I guess everybody has issues with memory, and particularly as 
one ages, it becomes more and more difficult sometimes to remember things. So you're the U.S. National Memory Champion. So who else is better uh, to tell us about how to improve our memories? Uh, I guess my first question is for you, because you're such the expert. Do you really, are people born with a good memory or is this an, something that is acquired, the skill? So I think memory is like anything else. You know, some people are born uh, a little better at sports than others, maybe a little bit better with math or music. Um, It really uh, depends. But what I do firmly believe is that no matter what your current level of memory ability, no matter where you're at now, with the right techniques, and a little bit of practice, you can dramatically improve your ability to remember from where you're at now. Why do people have such bad memories? Do they have bad memories? Do we have worse memories today, given the culture we live in and the uh, digital products that we use? Does that make a difference? Uh, Talk to us about that. Why do some people have just really, really good memories, and other people have terrible memories. What's, what's the process involved in being able to remember things? Uh, I do, unfortunately, believe that today the average person uh, is starting to have a worse and worse ability to remember because we are outsourcing our memory uh, more than ever to electronic devices. Um, Two examples. One, New York City cab drivers at one point were actually famous for their memory ability, so much so that universities were doing studies on their brains. But nowadays, they've become dependent on the GPS from the phone like everyone else. So if the network is down, something's wrong with the connection, they're having difficulty uh, navigating. Another example, phone numbers. We all used to be able to remember the phone numbers of so many friends, family members. I remember growing up, my parents would give me some emergency numbers that I should have committed to memory. We all used to be able to do that, but nowadays you give someone even one phone number and they just have, there's just no way they can do it. It's so bad nowadays that there are some people out there that don't even know their own phone number. Really, they don't. They have to look it up in their phone, their own phone number. So it's a very good example of the use it or lose it principle as it applies to memory. The good news is that no matter your age, age doesn't matter, you can improve your memory really at any age if you just learn the right techniques and put in a little bit of practice. And there there are many uh, techniques that I that I outline in the book that are not difficult. Uh, They're pretty easy for anybody to learn. And the exercises that I have readers go through in the book are are pretty fun and and entertaining. So it can also be really fun to improve your memory. Well, it's fun to improve the memory. And you also say that uh, it is a powerful tool that will give us a lifelong competitive edge if we know how to, to, to use the tool. Let's go through some of those steps because you do it. Yeah, so you, you clearly lay out techniques for us for total recall. Now, one of the things you mentioned is including the story method. So what does that mean? That helps us to remember what does including the story method mean or the story method. We're going to include that plus the body method, the um, journey method. Yeah. Yeah. um, I will quickly go over three main principles that will apply to the story method and other techniques in the book. And then if you're up for it, maybe we can do actually go through a quick exercise with the story method you can try to go through it, and then listeners can also follow along and see if they can complete the exercise. But first, I'll go over three main principles that will apply, again, not only to the story method, but to many techniques for improving your memory, and that is one, visualization. So trying to turn whatever it is that you are wanting to remember, turn it into an image or series of images in some way, because we're really good at remembering things that we see. 
an example, let's say you attend a party with one of your friends, and you're both there meeting a lot of new people. Two weeks after that party is over, you're talking with your friend that had attended with you, and your friend describes someone to you that you both met. Your friend says, Catherine, do you remember that attorney that we met at the party a couple weeks ago? He's also a member of the tennis club. A lot of times, given just that little bit of a description, you and your friend can both picture the guy from that party. You can remember what he looked like, but a lot of times neither one of you can manage to remember what his name was, right? And that is because when you meet people, you actually see their face. That's why you can remember their face, but you never see the name. The name is something much more abstract to the brain. So there's an entire chapter in my book on turning names into powerful visuals. But for now, I just want to cover visualization is huge because we remember things that we see. Second principle to keep in mind, after you visualize, try to involve as many additional senses as you can from there, because as you involve more and more senses, you are actually activating more and more areas of your brain, and you are building more and more connections in your mind to the information, so it's going to be so much easier to remember it later. Third thing to keep in mind is the psychological aspect to human memory. So when you are seeing these things involving additional senses, try to make all of this as you're experiencing in your mind, make it crazy, unusual, extraordinary in some way because we all tend to remember with little to no effort, we can remember things that catch us by surprise that are strange, unusual, extraordinary in some way, right? If, if a giant elephant right now during this interview crashed into the radio studio and started spraying water all, uh, over, all over people in the studio with its trunk, if that actually happened right now, you would probably remember that for the rest of your life and always tell that story. You'll never believe this. I was interviewing uh, this memory author and an elephant just crashed into the studio out of nowhere. It was unbelievable. That might be stuck in your head forever without you even trying to commit that to memory. That psychological aspect to human memory can actually be harnessed, and believe it or not, it can be applied to remembering presentations, facts, figures, foreign language vocabulary, exam material, and so on. So you want to keep those main ideas in mind uh, when learning the various techniques in the book. And I, I go over all of that in the book as well. But you want to apply that to the story method. So now let's move on to the story method. Are you up for trying to memorize uh, and have your listeners memorize a random list of words? I don't know if I'm up for it. Give us an example of it uh, before I commit. Let's hear what you have to say about it. Okay, so give us an example of what, how that would work. So it's, uh, it, we would use the story method to memorize it. The word list is going to be monkey, iron, rope, kite, house, paper, shoe, worm, envelope, pencil, river, rock, tree, cheese, and dollar. Now, when I recite that list of words, because I do this sometimes in, in corporate presentations, a lot of times audiences, people in the audience are looking at me at this point as if, you know, come on, there's just no way I'm ever going to be able to remember that list of words, not unless you give me a lot of time to do it. But the fact of the matter is that using the right technique, the right approach, that list of words can be memorized perfectly forwards and backwards in just really a few minutes using the story method. And I'm sure that you and also your listeners can, can do it, you know, at least get most of the words uh, right. If you're up for it, we'll give it, give it a try. Just see how it, go, how it goes. 
I don't know if I'm up for that, but in other words, I want to just, uh, I just kind of want to clarify. So you're going to take all, how many words were there, by the way, uh, there were what to, to memorize? There were 15 random words. Uh-huh. Yeah, and you would memorize them by just, uh, I would guide you through a story that you're going to visualize. So that is the story method, taking things that are first just completely random pieces of information and locking them into your memory by building a crazy and unusual story. And the whole key, the whole approach is to not come at this as a difficult exercise. It's not a difficult or boring exercise in memory. It is more of a fun exercise in just using your creativity and your imagination. And in fact, as you go through the story, you would hopefully be laughing out loud or laughing to yourself. That is the whole idea. And really, that's one of the main uh, ideas presented in the book is turning things that you need to memory tasks suddenly become, it's fun. And and when you can make that shift in your approach, it's going to make a huge difference in your ability to remember. So in other words, let's take an example. I I, I kind of prefer to do that. Let's put us in a situation where it's really important for us to remember something. This may be at a corporate meeting that we have to remember things and there are you know, 10 people sitting around a table, but you want to remember everything that was said. Or you may be a politician who's meeting and greeting with your constituents. You want to remember uh, that, whatever's happening in, in that context. Uh, and maybe those are two good examples because that's going to help you in your work situation. What would you do? How, do you, how does this work, storytelling, in, in those two contexts, for instance? Yeah, so... The story method is one of the basic techniques that you need to learn. That's why it's, in the, it's presented very early on in the book before I get to remembering names and before I get to techniques that would be applied to remembering information from, from meetings and uh, maybe corporate trainings that you would be sent to. Um, you first got to, to learn the story method uh, because it will be used in conjunction with the other techniques. Um, Again, as you're building your story, you're going to visualize, you're going to use other senses, you're going to make this story crazy, unusual, extraordinary, right? Because of the psychological aspect of human memory that I I went over earlier. Um, For names now, politicians, interestingly, that's one of the chapters, remember names like a a politician, Politicians know that remembering names is very important. I'll give you, there's a whole chapter on names. I'll give you two tips uh, here during this interview. One, it may seem very obvious, uh, but it's simply get into the habit of repeating the name as soon as the person is introducing themselves to you. So if you're introduced to someone named Bob, you're going to immediately say, nice to meet you, Bob, or pleased to meet you, Bob. Just get into that habit starting today. Because when we are introduced to someone, a lot of times our mind is on everything and anything other than the name, right? But that first step, repeating the name, in order to repeat the name back to the person, you have to focus on the name alone for at least one second, So get into that habit, start today, that's going to help you. In addition, you want to turn the name somehow into a powerful visual. So Bob, maybe it's bobbing for apples or Bob's big boy. It could be a character from a TV show or movie. could be a famous actor with a name. It... it, um, It could be even a friend or family member, but you want to come up with a visual and somehow uh, this will be connected to something that you already know. So those two things, those two tips will help you a lot with names. And what about you mentioned the phonetic alphabet system? How does that fit into helping improve our memories? 
Yeah, so I've been talking a lot already about visuals, right? Because, again, your visual memory is very powerful. So what the phonetic alphabet system does, it actually allows you to first take something abstract, like a number sequence uh, or a playing card, for instance, something that's very abstract, it allows you to easily turn that into first a word, and when you have a word, you can then produce in your mind a corresponding image. And then once you're able to easily produce in your mind images for number sequences, it becomes incredibly easy to remember numbers. So you can remember facts that contain figures, uh, dates, formulas, passwords, really anything that contains numbers. So that's uh, a basic outline of what the phonetic alphabet system is about. Um, But it's going to be difficult to cover in any more detail because I I would say it's going to take at least uh, 30 minutes to an hour to, to really learn the phonetic alphabet system. So that, there's an, that, that gets an entire chapter by itself in, in the book. Chester, can you give us an, an example of probably the most difficult, if there is one, uh, the most difficult challenge you've had in helping and training somebody or helping somebody to memorize uh, some, a piece or whatever they're trying to memorize like that, that, you were, that, uh, that you've accomplished? Well, I've, I've been working with people in, in person really for more than 10 years now, and uh, I've been helping people all over the world, and, and this book is the result of the, the 10 years of, of training people. Um, one example I can give you is that I took a guy who suffers from ADHD and dyslexia who had tremendous difficulty remembering numbers. And I actually, uh, I worked with him one-on-one private training for a couple years, and I got him to the point where he actually was interested in competing in the U.S. Memory Championship. And in the competition, he was able to memorize perfectly an 80-digit sequence forwards and backwards in five minutes with none of the digits reversed or, or anything, even though he has uh, dyslexia. So um, really a lot of times when people come to me with a real difficulty remembering certain types of information, I can help them with just, again, the right techniques and practice. It's, it's really amazing what you can accomplish with the right technique, the right approach, and, and some practice. Well, U.S. National Memory Champion, what does that entail? How do you get into it? What is the organization? Where is it? If somebody wanted to compete, what would you do? Yeah, so it's the USA National Memory Championship. Anybody can uh, find out information on it. Just I would you know type that into a search engine. U.S. National Memory Championship. They have a website. You can register there. It's held annually. Um, it was for many years held in New York City. Uh, this year, the finals will actually be held at MIT, uh, the university. MIT. The finals will be held there this year. It involves uh, memorizing. One, well, I'll go through some of the events. One event, for instance, is memorizing the longest sequence of computer-generated random digits, uh, forwards and backwards, in five minutes. Uh, another event is the fastest time for memorizing a deck of playing cards. So there is uh, a 52-card deck. They have a judge that will shuffle the deck uh, in front of you and you have five minutes maximum to memorize it, and then they will give you a new deck in brand new deck order, and you have a maximum of five minutes to arrange that second deck from memory into the same order as the first deck that you looked at, and then they will put the two decks side by side 
and flip through to make sure all of the cards match. Um, I used to be able to do it uh, in less than 90 seconds. Um, so again, it's amazing what you can accomplish with the right techniques and, and training. Um, those are maybe some extraordinary feats of memory, but the same techniques, the same principles that I used for the events in the championship uh, can be applied to practical uh, situations, practical items like presentations, again, facts, figures, foreign language vocabulary, exam material, and anybody can learn this. It's not difficult. Uh, the training can be a lot of fun, so I really hope that people will will look into it, look into the book, Mastering Memory. Mastering Memory, and if you read the book, Mastering Memory, you are really going to have these very practical applications, as you say, and this is going to be useful to anyone's, your career, education, personal life, all of that. So uh, it's... Uh, I, why don't you tell us, because we only have a couple minutes left, like a website that we can go to. And I think we can see you on YouTube as well, right? There's a uh, See You in Action. And just go to YouTube and I guess Chester Santos. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes, there are various ways as to how people can stay in touch with me. I'm in, in Prague actually shooting some videos for that I'm going to be posting to social media. So you can follow me on Instagram at International Man of Memory. So again, my handle is International Man of Memory on Instagram. Uh, Facebook, uh, Chester Santos Memory or International Man of Memory on Facebook. And the book, uh, Mastering Memory Techniques to Turn Your Brain from a Sieve to a Sponge, my new book, as of yesterday, is available on Amazon.com. So I really hope that people will check out Amazon.com for my new book, Mastering Memory. I, really, I, I know that it's really going to be useful to so many people in many areas of their life. Yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, obviously, that's why I had you on the show today. I think that's one of the big issues today because, that, first of all, there's so much, and this is sort of the last uh, uh, comment because there's so much information that we get every day. We get more information than we ever did, whether it comes from social media uh, and and it does. Uh, we have, and this access to information, I, I myself find my, I can't remember all of this. What am I going to do? And what do I, you know, pick out that's important or not important? But by reading your book, uh, mastering memory, uh, we'll have some insight in how to do this and, and be able to memorize things And it's from a very practical standpoint. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Chester Santos. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinesox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 